My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative. I am very excited to be joined by Heather Wilms, a reading coach, an instructor at the Vancouver Island University, and co-author of the book, This is How We Teach Reading, and it is working. So today we are going to discuss her journey to becoming a teacher and educational consultant and where she is today to help others on their journey and understand that everybody is on a lifelong learning process as an educator and gone are there days where we can be a one-room schoolhouse teacher and do everything we learned in training and nothing new. Thank you for joining me today, Heather. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So excited to have you. So let's not start at the very beginning. Okay. In high school, you obviously went to school and decided to pursue further education. Where did you go? What did you do? What did you want to be? That's a good question because at the end of high school, I had two choices. I was like, do I want to be a teacher or do I want to be a musician? And um, the pull of music was very strong. And so I decided that I would pursue music. If I could go back and talk to my grade 12 self, um, I would have some things to say, like, don't go there, go into education, because that's who you're, you are right to the core of your DNA. I also, in my choices, um, I, I grew up in Fort St. John, which is uh, in the north, and my two choices were music in Winnipeg or education in Victoria. And where would one like to spend the winter? I chose music in Winnipeg. So I, I really believe that, you know, and I tell this to my adult children, too, that the things that we choose and the things that we do all contribute to who we are and where we land. So although I would make different choices today, I, there was still some really great pieces that came out of that. Of course. And, you know, <laughs> thinking of your decisions on where to go, I, I can relate to my own where uh, I, you know, I had a couple of different choices for university, but I chose the one that I could go to with my horse. That was a oh, yeah. well, that's, guiding yeah. factor of where I went to university. Where could I go with my horse? Yeah. And um, at the time, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense as an 18-year-old who's horse-obsessed. Yeah. Um, but I, also, I had a boyfriend that went to Winnipeg as well, who I eventually married. So there's that. That's probably a good choice then. Yeah, it was a good choice. So you went to Winnipeg. You started your music education. What did that look like? So I majored in uh, piano and I minored in flute and um, spent three years getting my degree there. And then my fourth year, I finished online because um, by then we were married and, and moved on. And, you know, even though it was a bat, I, I did a bachelor's of arts in music. Um, it certainly was a gateway to moving into education. So when I was ready to move into education, I was already starting with a bachelor degree. Mm -hmm. And then I just needed to do 16 months of further work. Um, through my music degree, I ended up getting a job. Um, this is several years later as um, 
I had a couple of kids by then. I ended up getting a job teaching music in an um in a rural program. So I was an itinerant band instructor. And I think that's what led me back into education because I spent three days a week traveling between seven schools teaching um band to grade four to twelve. And as I did that work, I was just like, oh man, this is this is what I want to be doing. I had an amazing parent group that worked with me because I was working with seven schools. Mm -hmm. And when we eventually moved to Lethbridge from my husband's work, um, this will really date me, but they gave me a briefcase and they said, you need to go back to school and be a teacher. You are a teacher at heart. So after my degree um, in music, I did teach privately for many years and it worked really well while my kids were little. But then when my kids went to school, I was like, I don't want them coming home. And then I'm teaching into the evening. So it was a good shift for me. Awesome. So you did the post-baccalaureate teaching degree. And what did you learn during that about best practices in teaching and teaching students to become literate? So I, because I was moving, um, I, my gateway into education was in music because there's always a need for music teachers. Um, I, I graduated with a music degree and a, um, an English minor because I just always had this passion for literacy. I was a reader. I mm-hmm. loved to read and thought it was really important. So um I I did take some methods classes in literacy at a time when it was very interesting because my two children had started to read by then. And I actually had figured some things out before I hit those methods classes at university. So I have a daughter. My oldest is a son who went to school, learned to read, voracious reader. Along came my second who went to school and um, it was a whole language approach and she would bring home books that she needed to read. And so we would sit with her as she memorized these books. She was quite clever and had a good memory. And then she'd go back to school and read them to the class until the wheels fell off and she couldn't memorize all that was there for her. So then I thought, okay, how did I learn to read? Because I wasn't a teacher at this point. And I was like, how did I learn to read? And Mm -hmm. um, I remembered I had Mrs. Thompson, who was old when I had her. She had blue hair. And um, I learned through um, a very extensive phonics program. So that summer between my daughters, grade one and two, we sat at the lake and I taught her phonics. And I say, I did a terrible job. I had no idea what I was doing, but I did a terrible job of it. But it gave her enough structure and strategy in order to have um, some skills to rely on in order to decode. We broke the code and, and she started reading. So then when I got into university and took the language methods classes, I built what I was given around what I knew about phonics and how it helped my daughter learned to read. So I think my lens was very different in my education programming because I was just adding to skills that I was already um, developing. Right. And so was your program focused more along balanced literacy, whole language, or did it still include some elements of phonics within it? Um, I I don't, it's interesting because I um, still converse with one of um, my profs at that time. I don't remember a strong, um, well, I don't even remember any um, 
mention of phonics, but it was very much, you know, immersing children in rich literacy. Um, there was nothing about explicitly how to teach children to read. And then um, I remember a spelling class that I was in and I was like, okay, but at the end of the class, I still didn't know how I was supposed to teach spelling. Mm -hmm. And it, it was so interesting because as I entered the classroom, then I taught grade five for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I would get students um, in the beginning in you know, in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. um, I would get one or two students who weren't able to read. And by the time I left the classroom, you know, in about, I don't know, it was 2017, um, I had like 45% of my kids who weren't reading. And as I encountered more and more children who weren't reading as a grade five teacher, I was like, I don't know how to teach reading. That's not what I do in grade five. That is the department of grade one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is when I looked down the hall at grade one, two, and three, there were brilliant educators working very hard in those classrooms, mm -hmm. but more and more children were coming out um, not being able to read. And it wasn't until I became a learning support teacher that I really started digging in and going this, I mean, I knew it wasn't working in grade five, Mm -hmm. um, but as a learning support teacher, I was given um, LLI to use. And I very quickly, I just um, moved into some other activities. And that's when I started really reading and like, how do children learn to read and what strategies should we use? Yeah, well, and I think one thing that you just brought up about how hard teachers are working. And I want to make sure that every teacher listening to this podcast, every parent, whoever's listening to the podcast is not hearing us say that teachers don't have the best intentions and they aren't working as hard as they can with the knowledge that they have. I totally believe that. And, you know, my reason for creating this podcast was to try and get voices out there so other teachers understood that they're not alone on this journey, recognizing that teacher education programs historically have not been providing what student or what their pre-service teachers need to reach every student in the classroom right and understanding that it shouldn't be due to the teacher's need and desperation that they have to go out and search for it on their own um and yeah. so I hope tomorrow we're going to talk more about that. How hard yes, teachers that's, are working. That's, yeah. That is our next episode. Yeah. But before we get into that, we really want to dive into your journey and how yeah. you got there and how that's influenced uh, helping others get there. Perfect. So you said you started reading. <laughs> Where did you go? Where did you turn to when you're recognizing that you need to upskill? Okay, so I taught many years in grade five. Um, and, you know, in those years, that's when I, you know, I was a literacy person, I had strong literacy um, focus within my classroom, but I was realizing that this is not working. And we had these lovely, every five or six years, these lovely programs would be brought to our room, usually in the shape of a box, saying, this is it, this is what we need now, this is what's going to make it work. Magicure. Yes, and nothing, nothing worked. And I, I think when it came to literacy, I became a little jaded then about um, anything that was brought to me. I'm like, mm, 
this just is not what I'm seeing my students um, need at all. So um, let's go back. What was the question again? Where did you start looking? Okay, where did I start looking? Okay, great. So um, after many years uh, teaching grade five, I moved into a learning support position. It was very interesting because I um, I was offered a secondment at a university, like within 10 minutes of being offered a learning support teacher position. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, the university will always be there. But where I was teaching, learning support positions were really rare. And so I was like, I... I I can always work at a university, but getting in my district into a learning support position may not come again for a while. So that's what I chose to do. And I moved to a, a school where I had um, friends who I'd taught with before. And one very quietly came to me and said, you know, what are you going to be doing for reading groups? Which I, it was amazing how much um, reading group um, explicit instruction for those who are struggling was carved out in that building. I just uh, really commend that building for the work that they were doing. But she just quietly slid me an article and said, you should really look at this. It's an article about why three queuing is not a good strategy for um, struggling and emergent readers. Mm -hmm. And so I read the article and I went, yes, this was now resonating with, with what I was suspecting all along. And so from there, I just started digging. I, um, I started looking specifically with the name of the programs that were uh, in my building with queries of why LLI might not work. Or, you know, I started Googling stuff and then ended up um, moving into the world of um, what was the research telling us mm -hmm. about how children learn to read. And, you know, I, it's very interesting in timelines because I started teaching at the time that the uh, National Reading Panel came out mm -hmm. and did not hear boo of it until I started looking, you know, 15, 18 years later, which was very interesting. Mm -hmm. The other piece that really led me into the research um, of how kids learn to read and what how the brain works when it comes to reading. And all of this, of course, was through the lens of a parent who had done this work at home and was continuing to do this work at home. But from my learning um, learning support position, I moved into a district um, English language learner position. And so, you know, I was working with 1,100 students were under my umbrella, 600 were refugees. And so I was like, you know, what, a, what do language learners need, need to learn to read and, and to speak? And it was like, well, of course they need to be speaking to practice. But some of the pieces that I was finding in research, I was like, this is not happening for our Canadian children as well. There's an MIT study that I often talk about that talks, you know, MIT did uh, some studies into one of the things that um, supports brain development is back and forth conversations mm. and that it can supersede gaps in vocabulary. And I spent 15 years watching my students' vocabulary go down and down. One of the great things about being in the same grade for many years is you see the decline in skills that students came to me with. And so um, basically the gist of the report is that back and forth conversations will supersede a lack of exposure to vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so we have back and forth conversations. And I was like, no one's talking with our Canadian children. No one's having those back and forth conversations with them. That was a huge aha moment for me. 
-hmm. And then of course I went down that rabbit trail as well to see like, wh where's this oral language piece and what's happening with our students and our culture. Again, not to, not to blame our culture, but this is the culture that we are teaching within and, and need to understand um, the, how that impacts our students. Well, and I, you know, I think also the, the time where you began teaching is where we saw, saw the increasing availability of technology. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a, a sibling that's eight years younger than me. And, you know, when I was in high school, you know, people started having, you know, one or two home computers, depending where they were. Uh, and internet where I grew up. And then I remember seeing my sister, you know, when her friends were over, they'd be side by side on computers talking on Messenger. I'm like, that's not how you play. Yeah. Right. So there, there was a loss of interacting with peers uh, and more screen time, which, you know, we need to recognize the impact that is having and you know the shorthand that is being used when we're communicating online versus proper grammatical sentences yeah and uh even the thing about like so many conversations are silent now yeah I, I was in a meeting that was so interesting someone said you know when she was growing up there was a telephone on the wall and you often heard even half of a conversation. Mm. But now our children don't hear any conversations with others because they're done silently, which I thought was really interesting to think about. Yeah. yeah you can't listen in. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, you know, it, it is having an impact and then recognizing that even when kids are watching stuff on television, uh, the, the language isn't the same as that they'd be getting in an engaging conversation and also that they wouldn't be getting the same um, vocabulary that they get from when they're being read books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a parent, I know it's easier to turn on the screen. Than yeah. When you are max, then sit down with your child and read a book. And, you know, we're losing that story time piece unfortunately for a lot of kids yeah and so much happens in that story time exposure mm -hmm. to text attending on one thing attending in the same direction I mean empathy there's just so many pieces that we're missing yeah I remember doing a a, a read aloud presentation to parents and how you know we can have more engaging reading alouds with our kids and a parent brought a kid, so I actually used them in the presentation. I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna show you what I mean by an engaging active reader aloud with your child. And I read a book that I likely read a hundred times. It was like one of I think it was the Gruffalo. Yeah. Um, and so I knew this book well, and I'm like, okay, so you know, what's your favorite thing on this page? And he pointed something like really obscure that I never in a million years would have thought to draw attention to. And then it's recognizing that the things that interest our kids are different, unique. And, you know, if we help build the vocabulary around that, we can really support their learning and understanding of language and experience with life. Yeah, that's a really interesting um example you know because we do approach text through adult eyes and 
it's not the same not at all all right so you started doing this deep dive because of things that piqued your interest and where did that lead to how did that change your practice in the classroom and decide you wanting to do more to support others well I think you know in the classroom I hadn't started my dive yet Mm -hmm. and um as an educator I'm like oh if I could just go back if I could just go back there's so many things that I could have offered my grade fives Mm -hmm. and I know that's not possible and there was lots of things I did offer them but um as I started in um, reading intervention, I started shifting my practice because I remember I started with a program. I mean, I even did the training and I, I had some questions at the training that weren't really warmly welcomed by the presenter. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, hmm. And so as I started um, changing my practice, my students, uh, they started reading. So they broke the code. I had two children who um, were selective mute and they actually started talking. It was just, it was the most exciting time. And I was just like, I think for me, that's why I really didn't have a hard time shifting practice or um, discarding previous practices because I, you know, I was working with students who practices weren't working. And as soon as I started shifting, they started reading. And it it was just, it's, you know, at that point, I had never taught a child to read other than my own. And so when you teach a child to read, it is the most amazing thing that I'm just to be the, have the privilege to be a part of that that light. Flick and the amazement. And, you know, you can't, fake that no you can't replace that and the world that you are unlocking for the child when that happens is just an incredible feeling especially when they've been a persistent non-responder or um, failure whatever they want to call it a student that's struggling in reading and the ones that struggle the enlightenment is just so much bigger and the gratitude that they have is incredible. And the parents' gratitude. It's amazing. Yeah. I I think that's so true. I, you know, it was really exciting um, in that stage of my career as a learning support teacher. But when I became a reading interventionist for the district and I was working with kids in grade five, six that were starting to read, it was just like, this child's life is forever changed. Like you just know their trajectory is forever changed it's just yeah it's such a privilege and when a you know a student starts reading later grade four five six I'm like this is amazing this is so exciting and it's a dual feeling and the other feeling is this could have been done so much earlier yeah yeah and I think that's what drives my passion not just having a student a child who struggled with reading but Working with kids, uh, you know, it's so interesting. I worked with some two threes who um, were not reading and started reading. (laughs) They were just a fun bunch. But that look on their face when they're like, oh, my goodness, I might actually be able to do this. That little twinge is Uh, fantastic. And and the same thing when you're working with those grade fours and grade fives. They're like, okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to sell me this time. Yeah. They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. 
and it's just setting me up for failure. So I'm not even going to bother trying. Yeah. Yeah. And I often get the question like, well, you know, what do we do with students who don't want to come and do pull out our small group work? And I'm like, they're smart. They're like, mm, I've been doing this for years and it's not working. Why would I keep coming? But if you, they start seeing them progress and not all students, but generally if they start seeing themselves progressing, they're at your door going, they when are we going to read? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. When Once you find something that works, you can't keep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The they moment. want it. Yeah. They want it. And they know, I mean, I love Steve Dykstra's work. About, I mean, it's heartbreaking that we're creating some reading trauma by having kids in our classrooms day after day who can't read. I mean, I've seen that firsthand, um, but it's really important to understand what it does to children as they say. And the, the trauma never goes away. No. Even if they learn how to read, even when they're adults in their forties, uh, you know, I've had the privilege to work in a, a diagnostic clinic and working with adults in their 50s, 60s, 70s that break down or an emotional during the testing because they finally realize they're not stupid mm-hmm. and recognize that there was something missing and it's not their fault. Yeah. So. Yeah, there is many. I mean, and I think that's a piece that we need to communicate to parents and to students who do read mm-hmm. is that it has nothing to do with cognitive ability. It's about mm-hmm. brain plasticity and yeah. And also it doesn't have to do with how many books are in the home or how often they were read to as infants. And, you know, in the preschool years, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. While it will help yes. facilitate learning to read, there are children that have never been spo- exposed to the print language that learn how to read in kindergarten. Uh, and there are kids that have been read to thousands and thousands of hours from amazing literature mm-hmm. that can't figure it out in the first place. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, that's a real big piece for parents. I last week I just did a session for parents and it was just so um, it was just so great to talk about that to parents directly that, you know, it, it's you know, it's wiring brains. It's not about smart or clever or not smart or not clever Mm -hmm. and we need to change the dialogue Mm -hmm. uh with educators uh for how they bring it up but also the dialogue that we have with students saying oh if you just try a little bit harder you'll get it because you don't realize how much how hard they are trying Mm -hmm. and you know for a child that's tried their very best for so long and they get to you and they're like why bother? Mm-hmm. Because I try my damnedest and whatever you tell me doesn't work. Yeah. And some of if those little ones fail have... and not try, then fail and try my hardest again. Yeah. And we need to realize how exhausting it is for those littles who are trying so hard all day long to figure mm-hmm. out this thing that everyone else seems to have. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. Well, obviously you did a bunch of learning. Yeah. You saw the huge impact that this could have on student lives. And then you decided to help make that change for others. So how did that start? So 
Um, I after my time as an English language learner, there was a, a lead teacher for English language learners. Um, we had a move in store for us, and so I applied to become a reading uh, district reading intervention teacher for Comox Valley Schools. So we had a move. Um, it was a brand new position, and um. They were great. <laughs> they were, like I interviewed and they're like, you know, this is new and you don't have all the pieces, but you we think this will be a good fit. And so they hired me. I worked with a principal and director who are passionate about reading and reading intervention. I think originally my lens was supporting learning support teachers as they worked with struggling readers. And so um, I remember very early sitting down with the principal, the director, and the school psychologist and saying, what do we want Heather to do? What is what is her role here? Mm -hmm. And um, they were like, it's the big five. We're going to look at um, the components of learning to read and how we can support. At that point, we were looking mostly at learning support teachers. And the reason we were looking at learning support teachers, and I was had been one as well, is that over the years, the caseload for learning support teachers has just blown up and it's not sustainable and so it was like we've got you know all these students needing learning support we don't have enough um, manpower and this is I'm talking like beyond Canada like this is something that we're we were seeing and so um so I was going to start with um sharing at school staff meetings about how the brain learns to read and the components of of reading I was hired four weeks I started four weeks before the COVID shutdown and so um, in some ways, it was interesting. I remember emailing or texting my director and saying, like, do you, do you want to keep me or what do you want to do with me? Because I don't know anyone. And and they were like, no, nope, you just continue to do some online stuff. Um, but it also gave me the, the opportunity to do a lot of research, you know, because I knew exactly the work that I would be doing. And I thought I knew my clientele. And so I did a deep dive into, you know, some of the heavy hitters, Louisa Motes and Kilpatrick. And, uh, you know, I just, it was a very rich time for me. I, my husband was working elsewhere. So I had a big chunk of my life to sort of do this work in. And so in recognizing during that pandemic time when everybody was off, there were so many amazing opportunities to hear. Oh, free. Free. For free yeah. without traveling from the comfort of your own home and your PJs. Yeah. And learning from the best that no, and it was just an amazing time. And that's where a lot of teachers got started getting this new knowledge. Mm -hmm. Somehow I stumbled onto the Patton, uh, the pencil oh, series. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would get up at five in the morning and, and attend their podcasts and some wonderful person there. I was like, I can't register because I'm Canadian. And they're like, OK, so there's a school in Pennsylvania that their principal is getting notifications saying Heather Wilms took this for your school and Heather Wilms doesn't work there. But that's how they were able to work the registration process so that um, I could attend. So, yeah, it was it was really rich. And so in the fall, I was ready to go into schools and say, you know, very confidently, this is how children learn to read. These are the strategies that um, will be helpful for them. Mm. Within the first two weeks, I attended a session. Uh, for a school and I got like 10 minutes in and this wonderful teacher who's now a friend of mine stood up and said wait just wait 
how many of us have been taught how to teach reading? And there were about 30 people in the room. And she turned around and two hands went up. And then she went, see, no one has ever taught us. It was a powerful moment for me. Um, I finished my presentation, went back to the inclusive ed offices, sat down with my principal and director and said, this is the message. And I, you know, um, having done district work before I had built this uh, three-year plan of what I thought I might be doing in the next three years. And we just took that plan and we set it aside and we're like, we're going to respond um, to this request from teachers. And mm -hmm. so what I ended up doing is instead of working um, uh, just with learning support teachers, I went into buildings and I taught in classrooms and modeled for teachers and then the learning support teacher, not, you know, that changed their caseload and they were able to do um, really intensive work as well. And that's how I met and worked very closely with Shinta, who we wrote the book together. Is I spent a lot of time in her um, school initially, but I just I just started teaching and teachers were like, I've never seen this before. This is amazing. And um, then they started, you know, exploring on their own as well. That first week, um, that first year, Shinta's caseload was cut almost in half because teachers started doing the work. And yeah. so kids were getting double the exposure, which was so fun. And then she said, I, I don't remember the last time I've graduated so many children out of my program because they were getting it in the classroom and they were getting it from her. And in the end, she le was left with children who really did need that extra learning support. So... It was That's super fun. It was exhausting. I was at my kitchen table late at night planning like a first year teacher. I had some terrible lessons. I remember one where I was like, it was a grade four classroom and it, it was not a good lesson. I hadn't scaffolded well enough because I wanted what I did to be something the teacher could do when I stepped away because right. I wasn't going to be there when they came back. So anyway, yeah. I, re I said, can I reteach that one tomorrow and <laughs> we'll jig it a little bit. So that, so that was the work that I did. And um, it was really helpful for me. Some things look good on paper, but just don't translate into the classroom. And that's the thing yeah, that we need to recognize that we are learners in the process. And you know what? Kids are so forgiving. Mm, yes, totally. And they are totally cool. If you say, you know what? I'm trying to do better for you. And I'm learning while you're learning about this too. So there are going to be some times where we decide that this just doesn't work and we could even stop mid-lesson and say, you know what, let's do something else. Pull out a book, give them an interactive read aloud. I'm sure they're going to get something from that. They're going to get a love of literature, which is still important and, and still in our students, but we need to recognize that that's not enough to teach reading. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to lead or leave off for a jump into our conversation tomorrow. Uh, on the next episode where we look at best practices and supporting things. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Heather, and I look forward to our next conversation.